When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today's episode is about a song called Saccharine Trust. Not so much literally, but when you write a song, you're sort of just pulling from these various colorations and memories that have already somehow represented a a picture in your mind. So your job is to edit those things and bring them into being. The 90s for me was a completely encapsulated fog that I was sort of lost in. And then by episode one, when I move in with Duncan in LA, it was 1999, so I was kind of looking back, starting to take stock and just try to figure out what the fuck happened. So I made two records. One was called My Only Warm Coals, which was sonically looking back at four-tracking and trying to encapsulate what I had been trying to say. And I knew it was the last lo-fi record I would ever make completely on a cassette four-track. Everything was changing technologically. Studios were all arguing about how tape was still going to be king and, and digital would never take over. But everybody in the music world had like left me behind way a long, long time before this anyway. I was like a caveman. I was back with a handheld recorder trying to capture something that nobody else was interested in anymore. So at some point I knew it would be time to pull up my pants and make some sort of mid-fi or hi-fi record. Something I wasn't looking forward to at all. I'd spent 10 years trying to perfect one thing, reverting to some other philosophy where you plan to go record and you plan to be emotional on a microphone while you pay a bunch of people made really no sense to me. In the 90s, we had this militant lo-fi belief that you ought to be going through what you're talking about while you're singing it. Because otherwise it's just fucking showbiz and you might as well be singing some Brill Building song written for you. But then the inevitable prospect of you making a hi-fi record taunts you and seems to say, well, maybe you can't do this. And that challenge can just grow until you think, well, nobody's ever going to actually consider me a songwriter. Nobody's ever going to give a shit about me either way. Why not? Why not? Why not? Why not? eventually set out to make this record called Decline of the West that was a compromise of technologies. 
And Saccharine Trust was a conscious effort to process all the confusion I'd had from the 90s, reassemble it into something I could actually work with. Work with. Work with. Work with. Did you ever hear Saccharine Trust? No. They were on SST. It was like Men and Men, Black Flag. Right, right. They were like my favorite record label, like most kids in the skateboarding underground, I guess, in the 80s. And they did this record called Duck and Cover. It was like Who's Could Do and everybody doing... Is it yellow? Yes. I have it on vinyl. And it has like records falling yeah, from yeah, the sky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess Dinosaur Jr. does Just Like Heaven. And Who's Could Do does this seminal cover of Eight Miles High. But Saccharine Trust decided to cover Black Flag, and they did Six Pack. We're going to do a song that a, a famous band used to try to do, but they could never sing it with the feeling. They just couldn't get the feeling to this song because they never drink. They don't know what a fucking beer even tastes like. <laughs> this time, with feeling, emotion, for the first time. <laughs> But they were like an avant, hardcore, jazzy band. So related to Sun City Girls in a way, I guess. But really abstract, so kind of hard to wrap your head around. Years and years and years went by, and somehow Duck and Cover, you know, that record, would just sat in my head. It must have been Decline of the West. I was working on the songs that would make up that record, and, and there was a song that just seemed super poppy, like too poppy. I thought, oh, I'll call this one Saccharine Trust because... That title sounds like you're admitting that something's sugary, like trust that something's sugary and it's worth it or something. And so record came out. It was extremely obscure. came out in Italy and a, a very tiny micro label in Atlanta put it on vinyl, which ended up being worth like a hundred bucks because no one really knew about it. 
And uh, one day, the singer of Saccharine Trust like just writes me out of the blue, which just seemed so improbable, especially in like whatever 2006 or something. This guy Jack Brewer, he's uh, I mean, this is a pretty legendary underground band, and um, he wrote me out of the blue, and he was like, it seemed clear he had been googling their name. Yes. He writes me this really sweet letter. He's like, thank you for the song. It describes the band perfectly. It describes the arc of the band and, you know, the the end of the band. And and here's the lawsuit. <laughs> no, he was so nice. And the, But I was sort of like, I was really like blindsided by it because I was so honored that he wrote me. But I was like, well, actually, you know, the song's kind of about uh, this rock of opium that my friend gave to me when I was going off to college and I feel like he wrote me back and was like no no actually it's about the band (laughs) and I was like sure okay yeah you're right so a few months go by you know I mean I never hear from him again I don't think he was super nice I come home from my homeless shelter job this is this would have been about 2006 or 7 or something and um I reach into my mailbox and there's just this um, old Kodak photo of Jay Mascus staring blankly into a manta ray tank. Like with the manta ray kind of reflected on his face. I put it on my refrigerator. It wasn't from anyone. But I assumed, like, I must have said something to Jack Brewer. I'm assuming... Who, who was probably still gr- close friends with Jay Mascus reaching back to those days. I'm assuming he just sent me this as some sort of weird gift or something. I mean, to this day, I'm not really sure who sent it, but I, I think that was the only person that from that world that, that could have possessed this odd picture that he'd taken going to an aquarium with Jay Mascus, right? And so I guess fast forward like two or three years, and I eventually like magically join ohm which just happened out of out of the blue and one of the first tours we were offered like dinosaur jr offered to take us out on the road which was pretty hard for me to wrap my head around being like such a little kid super fan like i'm gonna have to share the green room with with jay masters great i attempted to form some words but you know there's really no right thing you can say to a guy like that the one thing I was really curious about was that my favorite skate video of all time. It's called uh, Memory Screen. It was this super, super arty, almost David Lynchy like experimental VHS avant-garde collage. And it barely had any skating in it. When it came out, pretty much everybody hated it because it was just, it was basically just an art project. But as the years went by, I watched it more and more and it became you know, in my mind, one of the coolest examples of, like, video collage. He did, like, the main theme for this film. It was a song called Little Ethnic Song.
And so I, I sat down with him and I tried to ask him about it. You know, I was like, I was a really big fan of that uh, soundtrack you did for the memory screen video. And it's just, you know, a stereotypical, like, very, very, very long pause. Almost like, okay, he's not even going to say anything. And then eventually he was just like, uh, I don't remember that. A couple months later, what comes out? New Alien Workshop video where he pays tribute to it and plays the song. I'm like, oh my God. He just straight up lied to me. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I don't know if that was his way of just saying, fuck off. I could be like sitting here staring at the wall, but I have to deal with you right now. I had enough of a sense of humor by that point in my career and life or whatever that I don't I didn't care. Right. I was like laughing it off too. It's pretty funny. A few years went by and you know we knew each other. We'd played a few shows together. And so I'm in the Netherlands at a music festival where you just, just sort of assumed you're going to smoke a lot of pot. So I was insufferably high and I probably didn't even want to be. And I was just like super high at like the lunch tent. You know, the artist lunch tent. It's a good place to be if you're high. You would think so. And then I look over, and uh, here's Jay Mascus, and maybe we nod at each other. And I'm like, you know, it's all very surreal for me, too, because of all people, this is probably the guy that set me on this road. I can't deny it. I ha there's no reason for me to try. But this is the, the initial weirdo that I was listening to that made me question a lot of my basic probably mainstream assumptions growing up about music the the script kind of got shattered once i really encountered this kind of super idiosyncratic kind of uncomfortable awkward form of expression he was dishing out to everybody but then somehow wrapping it in this weird candy coated fun to listen to he'd give it he'd give it a chorus that would kind of like sell you on it sonically otherwise he just sounded like a freak you know, so I'm sitting across from him and, and we're about to walk out of the tent together. And I'm like, you know, I'm so high. I can't think straight. So I'm like, well, I should say hi. This seems really weird if I don't say hi. And I like raise my hand up to smack him on the back. <laughs> I just thought like, that seems like what a familiar person would do. Sure. But you're so high. That you're like, is this like an overly familiar gesture or is this exactly right? And I just need to follow through. So my hand raises up and I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm about to like smack it down on his back. Like, hey, you know, it's been a while. You doing good? That's all. You know, and we walk two different ways. But like, because he has like this weird Jedi presence. I bring my hand down onto his back and bam, like right when it's about to smack his back, it hits a force field. Like, zzz, it just stops me. I look at my hand and I'm like, uh, pull it away. I'm like, okay, I'm definitely not going to say hi. That was like destiny. I was like, this is a bad idea. It's like, do not try to say hi to this guy. And 
I feel like that was the last time I came into contact with him, but you got to follow your gut in those situations. Definitely. So even though Jack Brewer thought the song was written about his band, it was it was really about that sort of extended bender of that year before I went off to school and some image of walking home with that big rock of opium in my hand and, and my T-shirt on my head and just kind of walking down the railroad tracks as the sun came up, sort of heading towards this unknown, horrible horizon. Sun is up and I'm trailing down a twisted In this last week before school, he gave me the opium as a going away gift. There was this insanely beautiful girl that worked at the record store a block down. I, I started fantasizing about this girl. I was probably just like so depressed about going to college too. And then I go off to fucking school in Asheville, first day of school, look across campus. The fucking girl is at the school too. And I was just blown away. I thought she was sent by God to, like, salvage this college experience. You know, this is like a a mission. I have to, like, find her. I have to charm her. We did date uh, briefly, but she crossed this horrible line that no one has ever done before with me, but like my whole life was built around four tracking. My whole life. Like it's the only thing I cared about. And so I'd make these tapes of like 60 songs. I guess those are pretty short songs, but it was like, I don't know, like 120 minute long tapes. Remember those? Yeah, totally. So I would do all my mix downs off the four track tapes onto this master tape. And that master tape was the only record of everything I'd worked on for that month. So it's all I had, all I owned in my life, my whole diary, everything that I cared about was on this tape for that month. You know, I had a pretty religious way of filing them away in these old cassette carrying cases. And uh, one day I come into my dorm room and I knew where it was. It was sitting right on my desk I knew I wasn't crazy, and it was just fucking gone. It thrust me into, like, a very deep depression. Like, like a very serious two weeks of just total confusion and depression. Because all my ideas, all, all, everything was gone... These couple weeks went by, and... I walked into my dorm room and like the tape was just sitting on my bed. And you know that feeling when you've just gone through absolute hell and then someone pulls the curtain back and you realize it was all for nothing, you know? Sure. Inside the tape it had a note. It was almost like acknowledging that like we weren't made for each other or something, but but it was like, P.S., you're an incredible musician or something. 
And in that moment, I realized, like, she had stolen this tape. And then just thought, you know, I'll, I'll just give it back whenever I want. And I don't know if I could have hated someone more than that. She'd already, like, hurt my feelings pretty bad at a, at a kegger in the woods. <laughs> because uh, I'm sure I was just like, God knows, like, so stuck inside myself and like you know she was probably trying to make conversation with me and as usual in that era I just could not do that and wasn't feeling very good she like interrupted me by a campfire she said you know you're like one of those new computers that I would never have the patience to figure out and at the time all I remember was just feeling so hurt I look back now and I kind of know exactly what she's talking about and I kind of agree, you know? If I saw a kid that was as, like, hard to talk to and, like, was so wrapped up inside themselves with their issues, I'd probably move on too. Right, right. But she had already kind of, like, shown me that she could just, like, cut you whenever she wanted. She was like super hypersexual and really beautiful and like she had a lot going for her but I could just tell that she was fucking twisted enough that she would like try to hurt you for no reason out of nowhere and I think I, I just started to kind of like pull back and was like you know although like you hold the power and I feel powerless but somehow it, you know in my gut you're the one with the real problems here you know what right, I mean right. and so then she fucking steals the tape and I'm like, I mean, my whole life was flushed down the drain for a couple of weeks. I had nothing. And then the big twist to the story was that this other girl was kind of in a whole different way trying to convince me. You know, you meet those people that they're just like, you're going to be my boyfriend. And I was just like, huh? <laughs> Her name was Crystal. She's like a nice Southern girl. She seemed to be nice, but she like she had a dark side. It's my, my nature to sort of like try to please people like that That want something from you And then I think I kind of gave her the indication Like this isn't going to be a relationship You're just telling me what to do I can't just do that, you know Right And then I think we went to the grocery store And she made me get in the back of her pickup truck And she literally like slammed me back and forth Just trying to kind of like break me down she would take hard corners and try to like beat me up in the back of the truck. So a similar kind of assault had happened from both of these girls, right? My bed, you know, my bed was terrible. It was like leaking from the pipes up, up in the, up in the rafters. And I was a freshman. So I was just felt powerless and like would complain and say, you know, I'm kind of like sleeping in a damp bed and like, I'm sick and I'm, I fucking hate myself. And like, can you guys fix this? And they're like, oh, yeah, we'll put it on the, the schedule. You know, and they never come. So I've got this, like, wet bed, and Crystal, like, sneaks into my bed. And I'm like, I literally, I'm so passive that I just don't do anything about it. I just pretend to be asleep. And at the same time, somehow, God has made it so that the other girl figures out how to sneak through my sweet mate's room and like come through my bathroom and she tries to get in bed 
and thinking that, you know, I'm this body that's actually Crystal, she starts kissing her, you know, like, like intensely, like they're going to fuck. And I can hear them. I'm just like trying to pretend like I'm asleep. You You're know? in the bed with both of them? Yeah. And I, and I can hear them like freak out, like lose it and realize, oh, this isn't him. And just run out of the room. And that was like my last final bit of satisfaction that I got this weird divine revenge on both of them. Because I didn't have the willpower to just shut them out of my life. I was just, I was too nice to them. Right. But in that moment, you know, it's like, it somehow vindicated the weird pain that they were trying to deal me. to support Drifter Sympathy. You can visit distilled.com and get a 20% discount off of designer clothing and jeans. Distilled offers luxury-grade denim at an affordable price, utilizing the same fabrics, factories, and wash houses as the best-known brands and designers while skipping the markups and middlemen. Just go to distilled.com and use the promo code EMIL to get 20% off your first pair. That's dstld.com with the promo code E-M-I-L. The second way to support Drifter Sympathy is to visit holysons.bandcamp.com and buy any episode of Drifter Sympathy or Emil's Music. Thanks for your support. I really miss being intimidated by people. I mean, of course, that was that was age 15 or something. But now it's like no one seems to have any gravity. And that is not my experience. I feel like I get intimidated all the time. Really? That, like, I'm having trouble taking anything seriously these days. <laughs> I think that's, I mean, I think that's good. Don't you? It feels great. I, I mean, specifically, I remember my dad... You know, there's that thing that adults do to you when you're a kid. They're always like, oh, I would love to be a kid again. And you're like, why? This fucking sucks. And they're like, just to not have bills? Just that alone. And you're like, something about you seems like a total liar. I asked my dad, I was like, would you want to be a kid again? And he was like, fuck no. Like, life just gets better all the time. Being young is just a... It's just an explosion of self-consciousness. It's just like the worst nagging doubt and like, you know, constant intimidation. But I'm just saying I really miss it. It was the harbinger of uh, excitement. It was the nature of like something's out there or something's going to come, you know, at some point to make life um, valuable. (laughs) Yeah, no, I definitely feel that. You can sort of see how things are going to play out to an extent. Yeah. It's not like the narrative is sort of like 
not totally written, but you don't have that like giant question mark. Yeah. I watched all my favorite musicians my whole life with this curiosity of like, why are they slowing down? Like, why are they kind of dropping out? Why do they seem like they take it less seriously? Because I never felt like I did take it any less seriously. So I'd watch them with, with this deep curiosity on like what was going on inside them. Your favorite band all turns into computer programmers and gives up, you know. But now, now I finally am to that place where I understand it completely. It's just I haven't slowed down. But I understand the feeling of maybe realizing that the world is just such a wash. I mean, especially as we look at it today. You're just like throwing your fucking record in the garbage can. I mean, it's like not even going to make it to the press. You know, it just seems like it just goes in the garbage right into a landfill, you know. I agree, but I feel like that's surprising coming from you. Because I feel like you put out so much music that like people like or you know it might not be like the most mainstream stuff but i feel like you have like a following with all this stuff and you have kind of like momentum and also you're so prolific like you seem to stay driven if you really felt that way i feel like you would just be like what's the point i'm not going to pick up my guitar anymore I don't know if I told you the story, but I was on uh, MDMA on New Year's. No, but I like this story already. (laughs) I took ecstasy, and it was New Year's night, and I was having a pretty great time. (laughs) Because uh, that's what what happens. Do you remember what year this was? When you take it. It's not last New Year's, but it's the one before. And I was in Portland, and I was watching... Uh, Sam Coombs from Quasi and Elliot Smith play with with maybe Janet Janet Weiss. Yeah, Janet Weiss and like and maybe Corin Tucker was playing at Sarah Lund and they were all doing like cover bands from the sixties and seventies and eighties. And I was tripping, like I was so happy that I like launched up on stage after they finished playing and I, I hadn't seen Sam in a long time. 10 years before we had played together with Jandek, this like kind of notorious cult singer. And so I hadn't seen him a long time and I was just like rubbing his back like you do when you're on ecstasy. I was like straight up just babbling. Like I was like, couldn't stop being like affectionate towards him. And was he in Heat Miser? Briefly. Yeah. Briefly, okay. Yeah. I'm just babbling and I'm like, you know, if, if I had it my way in a perfect world, we would have a band with me and you and Ash Bowie from Palvo and Jason Lowenstein from Sebado. And I immediately I was like, why the fuck did I just say that? It's the dumbest, tripping, overly optimistic thing to say. You know, I think he was just kind of fielding everything I was saying, just kind of like, he just finished playing, you know. And like the next day, he emails me and he's like, Thinking about your idea, man, it's, it's fucking great. Let's write everybody. Let's make it happen. Really? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, uh, I'm like, uh-oh, what, what have I done? Like, this could be amazing, but it, how are we going to, like, logistically make this happen? Because everybody lives in different places. So we all start writing each other. Bam. Super group. Formed. It's a real band. Ash Bowie, Paulo, Jason Lewisine, Sebado. Sam Quasi L. Smith and Little Emi. Boom. Done. 
And, uh, you know, three emails in, we all realized we're just way too lazy to do this. We're not going to do it. Was it one of those things where finally someone said it and you're all like, ugh, yeah, this is what I was thinking too? No one really had to say anything. It was just like, oh my God, how are we going to actually do this? You know? I mean, it's hard to do a band when everyone's in the same place and you all have to have the same expectations. It was like supposed to be sad, that moment, supposed to be sad where you realize, oh, this is the greatest, like, group of musicians I, I can imagine is not going to happen. And then it wasn't sad at all because everybody was just like, uh, I got shit to do. <laughs> That's that kind of moment where I'm like, oh my God, I've become this lackadaisical, you know, I need to fucking wash my hair tonight. I'm not going to write a song with, with my idol. You know what Right, I mean? right, right. You have to pick where you're going to put your energy. And it's like, that seems like expounding a lot of energy. There's this horrible feeling down in my stomach that like, we're just not living in the same world that we used to, that the world has changed. And like in the nineties, if I heard about a, a record being made by those people, like that would have been big news for me. I would have been like, Oh my God, these, these guys are amazing. This is going to be great, but we're living in a different world now. And the energy and the localism is all dissipated. There's not a center to all the energy that is supposed to define the underground. And, and that's just, it's kind of a sad thing for me. And I, I don't think I've, you, know, you could consider me having like aged out, you know, and like, I'm just like, my ears not to the ground. You could consider that reality. But let's put that aside and just listen to underground music in 1989. Compare it with underground music in feel like I have to like say this represents this and this represents that and some sort of core value system has disappeared but 
the nature of the transgressive elements of both of those things does seem inherently different. I think we can see that, like, the nature of the intrinsic excitement of transgression itself has morphed. Whether or not it's good or bad is probably not the question. Obviously, you're always kind of, like, drawing on, like, previous generations and influences, but it felt like, at least in, like, the 80s, the bands you're referencing, like, they were doing something sort of new. I'm reading this book now about creativity. I met this guy, Jesse Cannon, and he's like, was a record producer, he's a really nice guy, and he gave me this book, and he was talking about creativity, and he's like, creativity in music isn't doing something new. It's taking something that you emotionally connected with in the past and kind of like giving it back to you in a little different way. And that to me was really interesting. It's like completely entirely natural for expression to morph and meaning to morph, but there's always got to be a core to the nature of rebellion. But maybe it morphs so much sometimes that it becomes completely unrecognizable. I just came back from like three different tours. I go into these old towns that I used to live in that I do a podcast about and I say shit to the audience, you know, just making conversation about blah, blah, blah in the old days. And people just look at me like, who the hell are you? You know? Right. And I'm like, shit, you know, maybe I only lived in Asheville, North Carolina for four years and there's just no way that I could even know anyone here anymore, you know? Did you feel like a connection to the place still or did it feel like you were just in like an alternate reality? I don't feel a lot of like inherent trippiness anymore. I'll return to the place with this kind of a particular like faint fondness for it, but it's the crowd that freaks me out because I'll try to talk to them as though we're kind of familiar with the same shit and they just look at me like with these blank faces like people don't get any of my references like I was telling these jokes on tour. I mean, you know, some are designed to not be that funny. That was the only thing that I was a little disappointed about the show I saw here with Mono. I felt like you guys had to, like, really go, because obviously your support. But I was like, I love the element of you interacting with the crowd and talking. That's Like, I love the music, but I think it's so great. Oh, man, I was doing, like, full stand-up. Half of the show, I was doing full stand-up on the last tour. The tour before that... It went so good because I was, like, really uh, enjoying it myself. Yeah. And then something happened where, you know, I was under the gun on the next tour while I was feeling a little bit sick, and I didn't want the crowd to focus on that. So I was kind of trying to stay in denial myself of, of the fact that I was kind of hoarse. And so I was trying to revamp my whole stand-up routine, but I just wasn't feeling it some nights, and... I had a couple bits that I was doing. (laughs) When it went well, it was so fun because that's just not who I've ever really been before. Like, I never really connected with the audience like that. And so it was really refreshing to, to sort of bring the, like stage down and just stop being an entertainer and be a different kind of uh, relatable entity for a second. But sometimes it just confused the fuck out of them, which I thought was really funny because 
you know, I would read reviews and stuff where they like couldn't reconcile the fact that something would be funny in one second and then sad. You know, like that they were like, What did I pay for? You right, know? right, right. But so to me that was kind of avant garde and hilarious. I was playing an old Dinosaur Jr. song, and I, I ended up going off on this, like, riff about how difficult it is to, to meet Jay Maskus and, like, how hard it is to really, like, you know, get him to even speak. I've never interviewed him, and it's almost happened a couple times, and every time I've been like, no. And not because I think he's going to be a dick, but I'm just like, I think it's just going to be too hard. <laughs> you know what I mean? I probably just abandoned the story because I'm like, oh shit, like these kids might be too young to know who Jay Maskus is. Like, what the, what the fuck am I doing? Like, up here in this moment, I just have like this flash. I'm like, I feel so fucking alone, you know, on this microphone with a thousand people out there just being like, huh? Like, Jesus Christ, what's, what's happened to like the teleology, the linear motion of, of underground music, you know, it's like, it's always been built on the shoulders of the thing before. Right. But going back to the point about living in Asheville for four years is like, shit, maybe, you know, the, the shifting sands of this community move so quick and the value systems have changed so many hands and so many paradigms that like maybe I shouldn't expect for anyone to know anything anymore that because they could be coming from a completely different continent you know and so maybe it shouldn't be such a shock but there was moments on the mic where I just uh, I felt kind of like like what am I doing up here entertaining people there's a very lonely moment where you're kind of like I'm not really an entertainer but I'm up on stage in this moment and the light hits you in the eyes and you're like, people have paid for this and they don't know who I am if I'm supporting someone else. And there's, there's a very awkward moment where you're like, I have to try to engage them just for their night to go smoothly. You know, like who cares about my experience or a good review or if they ever listen to my records, who cares? In this moment, I'm just supposed to be entertaining them. That's all that's supposed to be happening. Is there a level in your head where you're like, but like, why the fuck do I have to like prove myself to you guys? Like I've been doing this for so long. It's, this isn't my open mic. Like look at all this stuff I've done. And like, I still feel like I need to like, convince you that I'm like worth your like attention well you know on a real bad night I guess you could just fucking sink into that where you're just like what is going on I'm trapped but in general like you want to kind of respect the fact that there's an entire room of people standing on their feet who paid money and you're there's a spotlight on you you have a microphone like That'd be a crazy thing to take for granted. That would be insane. But there's a moment where if, like, there's no referential points between you, if history doesn't exist, you know, if you can't refer to anything like a common experience that you're trying to build off of, there's a moment where you're like, oh, my God, this wall is so thick between us. Like you said, creativity in itself doesn't appear out of nowhere I like the idea that that you say it comes from a previous connection, right? Right. Because that's what we're talking about, the lack of here. So 
It comes from a previous connection that's been reconfigured into a new amalgamation of words or visual elements. That's what Carl Jung said genius was. He said that, you know, genius doesn't exist as this thing that, you know, a species that just appears. It's like comes directly off of other, like, right. building blocks. I used to always fantasize, like, when I was younger, like, what if I, like, so- someone found, like, a new color? And not, like, a different shade of yellow. I mean, like, you went into the forest and there was some fucking color that was, like, just different. Like, if you had never seen green before or you'd never seen purple and it was just there. And then I kind of hit a point where I was like, no, it's like, that's never going to happen. Like, we know every color. There used to be characters in your community. There was the one guy that looked like that, and they held a gravity to them. Now you walk down the street, everybody's just trying out a look. Well, today I'm, you know, I'm a 1974 proto-punker. Right. You know, and but I'm not really that guy. I'm just referencing it, you know. Right, right. So there's this sense of just like, well, how could I be intimidated by you? You're just playing a character. You're not a character. You're just playing one. And there's something just so kind of incredibly boring and deflating about that, you know. But just walking down the street and realizing everything's been reduced to a look. There used to be people that embodied something that they seemed obstinate. They seemed stubbornly themselves and they stuck out like a sore thumb. The situation we're living in is morphed. It's just changed, you know, and it's almost hard to assess because it's so we're in such a new paradigm still. There used to be a nexus point. There used to be a kiosk that you put flyers on in your town. And somehow, I don't know how, but somehow the flyer would say something and it would reverberate through the town. People would be talking about it. Now it's like you fucking pay to sponsor a fucking post on Facebook and no one really sees it or you don't know who and you don't know where everybody looks and you don't know where everybody congregates to be part of like a basic level of communal articulation, communication, expression. So it's just a fucking like Hail Mary crapshoot compared to a time where I thought I could be completely fucking wrong, but it, it felt like people were all talking and kind of huddling around the same fire. I hear you calling from the river bank. We'll be coming when the air is black. All my time is lying on the factory floor. Time is lying on the factory floor. Some say Messiah coming, got to get it right.
Some say Messiah coming Give me back my time Oh, my time is lying On the factory floor On the factory floor I hear you calling I hear you calling I hear you calling usually edit way too much spending hundreds of hours just tightening things down to a real fine point so for this one I just let the conversation go a little bit in a therapeutic sense it feels pretty incredible to look back at your life and see how the dominoes fell to create the circumstances you wove through to write the script that put you where you're standing at this moment. One of the central realizations I've come back to is that I always was and still am an idealist. I was trying to explain this to an old friend the other day, and they were like, no, I think you've just always been really negative, scathing, and uh, a realist. And I was like, but why do you become that way? What creates a lot of that bitterness is running out onto the battlefield as an idealist. One of my favorite things about this podcast is that I think anyone can kind of listen to it. I don't think you have to be particularly versed in underground history or some shit. I also really like that I'm not particularly well known. So you kind of have to come to the table and find a genuine interest in relating to this person you don't know. It's not just fucking Elton John talking about the songs of 73. And as a cult musician, I'm supposed to be bitter because I don't make much money off this stuff. It's just part of the script that I gave my life to something. My life is halfway over, and now I'm supposed to look back and wonder what it was all worth. But in hindsight, I can see now that I chose that, and reconciling with that, and knowing that it's my freedom to define my own situation as one that I created for my own ability to function... That's taking what everybody else calls failure and turning it into total empowerment.
Those are elements that I can possibly control, but the problematic dynamics out in the world are a totally different mountain to climb. The future could be really ugly. There's a lot of evidence that it already is. From the beginning of the dawn of technology, there was always that constant promise that things are going to be easier. Well, what if things being easier is like the worst thing for us? You'll notice a constant correlation between depression and disengagement. But we've knowingly designed this new world to remove the work from the equation. The one thing that actually makes us feel alive, so we're trying to build the perfect consumer race. So you'll never have to be physically present for anything, and life will be ordered by you through Seamless, which isn't very romantic, but more importantly, you won't ever have to do any work. Every time society pulls forward and realizes that they're free, there's these whole new uh, traps that seem to get set, largely to make money, as you can see with the FCC and everything right now. But even as people, we're continually commodifying each other on whole new levels, finding new ways to objectify ourselves, even if we're stepping out of the old ways of cruelty. As much as I feel free to be alone without any larger narration of what I ought to do, I can also see myself as a new kind of product. Even though something can be made rawly as a coarse piece of art in autonomy, it can still be bought and sold by somebody else to you. The fact that Spotify can jump in between us and have a $58 million Skyrise headquarters with, with fucking idiots sitting at uh, cubicles getting paid just to stand in between me and you is insanity. So the use of going back to the 80s and talking about this sort of old heyday bullshit that's probably really tired to somebody and probably really uh, sentimental to another, I think it's all just part of uh, unconscious or semi-conscious natural urge to reach back to the last time you remember life being this organic celebration of what is true and real to you which for kids my age was just the pre-Nirvana era. Not too dissimilar from someone in 1962 going through all the cultural changes that created the Summer of Love and then trying to relate to somebody in 1972 who's just born into like weekend festival culture in the hippie movement, just thinking this is just this endless carnival of hedonistic fun. It's like, no, you're standing in a fucking mini-mall, dude. You, you didn't see what was sitting here before. One of my favorite moments of one of those documentaries called The 60s or some shit. And it's like one of Dylan's friends. And he's trying to relate the seriousness of the folk era, pre-rock festival era. And he's saying the way it used to be was like if somebody tried to hip you to a new artist... In that climate, you would just naturally respond, 
Well, what do they have to say? Obviously, the pendulum swings back and forth, and we will return to these states of rebellion time and again. But it's only natural to worry that nobody's going to pick up the fucking torch. Unfortunately, we will meet the new boss that will be the same as the old boss, and the new gatekeepers will be just slightly different versions of the old ones. Tripping out on, like, why people don't seem unique anymore is just probably a total illusion. I mean, 100% it's got to be a fucking total illusion. It's probably just a side effect of wanting to get back to something familiar and attempting to rekindle this initial naivety. Time to descend to this tomb. 